0: Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good deal. I want to start out this morning doing something a little different than, than what we typically do. Um, in your passport, you probably have a sheet that looks like this. And you're probably wondering, if, you, if you're one of those people that likes to look ahead, you're probably wondering, what is this sheet for? I want, to, I want to start this morning with doing something with this sheet. And so if you have this sheet, go ahead and take it out. It's just a blank sheet of paper here. And and I want to kind of go back for where we were last week. We talked last week the fact that God is the God of the broken, that he can come into our lives and establish beauty for brokenness. And we we talked about last week this this vision that Isaiah had when he was there at the throne of God. He saw this vision of who God was. He saw him right there, and he was essentially face-to-face with this almighty, sovereign God. Well, I want us to, to, to kind of have a mental exercise this morning that I want us to participate in. And, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out a, a, uh, that piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to just write here something for me, okay? Just imagine for just a second that you're the only person in this room, all right? You're the only person sitting out there right now. It's just you. It's you and Jesus, And Jesus is actually here with us. We know right now Jesus is here with us. I mean, do we agree in that right now, that he's here with us? Absolutely. But I want you to get this picture in your mind that it's just you and it's Jesus. It's him physically, like right there, and you are standing face to face, or you are sitting face to face, toe to toe, nose to nose with your Savior. And he knowing knowing everything, Knowing the details of your life, you're sitting there with your Savior, just you and him, what would he say to you? What In, in just a two, two or three sentence writing, what would Jesus say to you? Knowing everything that's going on in your life, knowing your past, knowing all that. What would Jesus say to you? Now, I realize this is pretty, a, a very private moment. So I'm, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna get quiet here for just a couple minutes and I'm gonna let you answer that question on that sheet of paper. We're not taking these up, we're not showing off, we're not, I'm not asking you, hey, what did you have on your paper? It's not that moment, okay? This is gonna be just for you from here till, till kingdom comes. So let's just take a moment and answer that question on, on that piece of paper. What would Jesus say to you if he were with you Right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, God, to hear your word this morning, Father. And, and I just pray, Lord, that, uh, that God, your word would shine through this morning, God, that this would not be uh, someone's opinion, God, but Lord, that this would be your, your truth, Father. Lord, we, we need you, God. We need to be changed by you this morning. We need to be changed by your word, by your spirit, Father. So we just we invite you in this morning, God. You're already here with us, God. But Lord, we ask that we would just open up our hearts this morning to hear from you, God, that we would be challenged, Father, by your word, and, and God, that we would be changed. So Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take that sheet of paper, you can fold it, you can put it under your seat, you can put it somewhere beside you or whatever, we're going to come back to it at the end of the service, so there's a reason for that, but just go ahead and fold that up, put it somewhere close uh, where we can get back to it here in a little bit. Um, This morning, I want to talk about failure. I want to talk about failure this morning. It's kind of a touchy subject. It's a word most of us don't really care much for. When you hear the word failure, you kind of cringe, or at least I do, because failure implies not succeeding. It implies this idea of just not doing well, okay? And, and, And I want us to look here, look at the introduction on your outline here. Failure is the direct result of our brokenness. It was manifested in the garden with the fall and will be ultimately conquered at the end of time when we meet Jesus. And and then you have this last little phrase here and it's in parentheses, uh, or or excuse me, quotation marks. Failure is a part of life. Failure is a part of life. This, This phrase, a part of life, I'll just tell you. I grew up hearing that phrase a lot, okay? This was my mom's catchphrase, all right? Uh, Every time anything happened that I didn't want to do, she would look at me and say, well, son, that's just a part of life. And it got kind of, at times, kind of annoying. So you know, I'm a young man. I'm 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 kind of wild. So she didn't leave me at home by myself a, a ton. But Saturday morning would come, and if you guys know my mom, she loves the yard sale. Um, we're thankful for that now because she's supplied a lot of the furniture in our house. But she loves the yard sale. But at 12 years old, a 12 year old boy doesn't give a rip about yard selling. Getting up at six in the morning to go look at treasures in people's yards. But for whatever reason, she got me up with her. And I remember, I'd go with her on a Saturday morning, which most 12-year-olds might be sleeping in a little bit. I was up at the crack of dawn. And we're sitting there, and any time I would complain, she would use the phrase, that's just a part of life, son. And then, you know, a, a, a little bit later, she got into sewing a lot. I know there's a lot of people in here that sew. And uh, Mary Joes and Gastonia, have you ever any of you? Can I just tell you, I don't know a man, and if you're in here, that's great. I don't know a man that likes that store. And I definitely don't know a teenage boy that doesn't like that store. We'd go out to eat together. We'd have a pleasant day. And and my my mom would say, let's just stop by Mary Jo's. I want to look at some fabric. And we would be there, it seemed like for hours. It was probably like 10 minutes. But I'm just not a fan. And you know what she would say? That's just a part of life, son. And the thing that's so annoying about that phrase is it's true. That's the thing that's so hard about that phrase. I'm a teenage guy. She's an adult. Guess whose schedule was more important at that age? Hers. So you know what she's saying there? That's a part of life. That's the way it is. And failure, when we, when we look at failure, when we hear that statement, failure is just a part of life, we cringe, but we kind of know... There's truth to that. There's truth in that. We all face failure. Everyone in history, everyone successful in history has faced failure. Thomas Edison, his teacher said about him that he was too stupid to learn anything. Walt Disney was fired from his first job because, they quote, because he lacked imagination and good ideas. Michael Jordan One of the, probably, arguably the best basketball player of all time. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Van Gogh, the famous painter. Van Gogh only sold one painting in his lifetime, and it was just a few months before he died. And and that's just the secular world. I mean, when we look in, in Scripture, we see failure throughout the whole Bible. Noah was a drunkard. Job, failure and calamity followed him Pretty much all of his days. Abraham, Jacob, they were polygamists. They were liars. Joseph, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned. Yeah, he he had a good ending, but man, he had a tough life. Moses, had anger issues. Rahab, a prostitute. David, who was called a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer and a murderer. And that's just the Old Testament. You follow in the Gospels, you look at the life of Peter and Let's face it, every time the man opened his mouth, almost, not every time, but almost every time the man opened his mouth, out was coming something that was failure. I mean, just something that, that wasn't right. Even Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who writes the majority of the New Testament, even Paul had failure in his life. He talked about failure, and he talked about weakness. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. As you turn in there, I'd like to say this I have to admit something to you. Um, I am just a smidge intimidated this morning with this passage. It, it in my opinion, is one of the most scholastically challenging passages. That I can think of. There's others out there, but this is definitely one of them. And so, when when I was in my prayer time for the last few weeks talking and and, and talking to God and praying through what I'm gonna share, this passage just kept coming up. And, And I'll be honest with you, I'm presenting something that some of you scholars out there, which I am not one, some of you scholars out there know much more about this passage than I do. But it is a challenging passage, and so I ask that you pray today, pray for, for, for you that you would hear uh, the word, you wouldn't hear man's opinion, you'd hear the word, and that you can discern this passage for yourself in your own quiet time, your own private time. But nevertheless, this is where we're at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Is there beauty, here's the question I want to ask, is there beauty in the aftermath of failure? Is there something that is redeemable in the mess called failure that we find ourselves in. We have a struggle with failure. And and as you look at our struggle with failure, there's two types of failure I wanna talk about today. And really, I, I think that just about everything about failure can probably fall into one of these two categories. And one you're very familiar with, the other one we'll talk about. But the first category is moral failure. Moral failure, and this category, this this failure is determined by our choices. It's determined by our choices. The choice to lie, steal, lust, kill, hate, envy, covet, complain, disrespect, the list goes on and on. Moral failure is something that humans struggle with. And it's ultimately every choice in moral moral failure. It's ultimately the choice to exalt ourselves above God and above others. Ultimately, that's what every single moral failure boils down to. This idea that we're going to exalt ourselves and exalt uh, exalt ourselves above God and above others. Look at man in the garden. Genesis 3, chapter 4, it talks about this. What was the lie that Satan was feeding Adam and Eve? It was this idea that if you eat this fruit, you will become like God, that you would be on equal standing with God. And they desired that. It appealed to them to exalt themselves to that level. That wasn't even the first temptation you see, though. Even Satan was tempted with this idea of exalting himself. Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah 14, 13 talks about the fact that he wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God, above God, above the angels, above all that was there. Moral failure stems with this idea that we want to exalt ourselves above God, And above others. And it's the idea that we take on for ourselves. We get a short-term gain for a long-term loss. Moral failure is the choice to receive a short-term gain for a long-term loss. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see this in the lives of ourselves. We see this in, in the lives of our friends and family. How is it that a man could leave his wife and children. How does that that even compute? I mean, to have such a wonderful thing, a gift from God in that little family family unit and to leave his wife or to leave her husband for those fleeting moments of pleasure in another relationship. A short-term gain for a long-term loss. And we see this in our world. Everything, a lie, a lie. What does a lie do? It gets you out of a short-term bind. You're able to gain something for a short amount of time, but eventually what happens? Lying catches up with you. And this is a choice that we choose to make. This is a failure, a type of failure that we knowingly choose. And in that moment when temptation comes, we are choosing To exalt ourselves above God and above others. And in the long term, it's devastating for us. And we see this. We understand this. Not just moral failure, but the second type of failure you see here is performance failure. Performance failure. This is determined by our circumstances. Determined by our circumstances. And what you see here in this is each one of us, at one time or another, is a recipient of performance failure. Times where we have the right heart, the right attitude, the right character, but it still doesn't work. Think about this. We practice layups every day, yet we are still cut from the team. We study for hours for that test, yet we still get the bad grade. We work diligently at at our jobs, yet we still lose it. We save and spend carefully, yet still broke. We eat healthy and exercise, yet still get sick. And for whatever reason or whatever whatever circumstance, the business still fails, the bank account still overdrafts, the B we wanted is still a D, and the body we have been taking care of still gets cancer. That there is these, these types of failure out there that are essentially outside of our control. That It's not determined by our choices. It's determined by our circumstances. It determines by what the economy does or or what this other person does or or these different things, these different variables that are out there. We are victims, in, in in a sense, of performance failure. Now, it started in the garden. All failure starts in the garden, performance and moral. And we are a casualty of this type of original sin that is in the world today. So whether by our choices or by our circumstances, we feel the sting of failure a lot. We feel the sting of failure when we choose moral failure. We feel the sting of failure when, when the circumstances of life bring failure into our lives. So what does God say about our struggle with failure? What does he say about it? Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself against false teachers that have come in trying to discredit his character. This is, this is really 2 Corinthians, this is what's happening. These, these false teachers have come in and they are trying to discredit Paul as an apostle, trying to discredit him as a good, solid teacher. And here in, verse, in chapter 12, Paul tells us about a vision he has of God, which is kind of cool. He has this vision in verses 1 through 6. Paul describes to us in third person this, vi- this vision that he has 14 years ago of him and God. And, and a lot, I mean, when we hear this, we think about what we talked about last week. Just like Isaiah, Paul has a vision where he sees God for who he is. Pretty incredible thing. I mean, we, we said this last week. Many of us would probably want something like this to happen in our lives. I mean, I remember growing up thinking, man, I would love to just see God in this way. Many of us think this way. I mean, just the visual beauty of a scene like that is astounding to think about. And for some of us, I, I wonder, because I, I remember facing this, for some of us in our lives, I wonder if, there's a little confusion about what would happen if we do see God that way. Some of us might be holding our breaths for an experience like this because we think this. We think that if I could just see God like this, like Paul saw God, if I could just see God like Isaiah saw God, then maybe I wouldn't struggle. If I can just get closer to God... I'll be more prosperous. If I can get closer to God, I'll keep that job. If I can get closer to God, I'll have plenty of money. If I can get closer to God, everyone will like me. If I can get closer to God, my kids won't be so rebellious. If I can get closer to God, I will be healthy. If I can get closer to God, temptation will be less. And what we're saying is if we could just get closer to God, failure would be a thing of the past. And really what that boils down to it's something that, that has pervaded churches across America. It's pervaded culture and TV and everything. And it's this idea of prosperity gospel. And what we've done with God in this scenario is we've basically made God a formula to be learned. A formula to be learned where we say to God, okay, if I just do A plus B plus C. If I, if I, if I pray daily, if, if I read my Bible daily, and if I go to church daily, then I won't have failure in my life. Then I won't struggle. Then life will be a lot easier. And it's, it's ultimately, at its core, a prosperity gospel Because here's the truth about failure And this is an interesting statement So you need to really look at this carefully But here's here's the truth about failure Drawing close to God Does not prevent failure In fact It might create the potential for more Drawing close to God Does not prevent failure In fact It might create the potential For more I was talking to a good friend of mine, Chuck Helmus, this week, and we were talking about this idea that the Christian life is a lot like swimming upstream, a fish swimming upstream. And we know how this works. It's easy to float and drift downstream, is it not? But when you start swimming towards the source, when you start swimming towards the, the, up the stream, you have all this current that is trying its best to push you down the other way. This is a lot like the Christian life is. The closer we get to the source, the closer we get to God, the current of our culture, the current of this flesh is constantly trying to just resist us and push us down the stream, away from him. How do I know this? This is how I know this. I was at the doctor's the other day. Nothing crazy, but I was at the doctor's the other day, and you know there was a magazine sitting there in the on the little coffee table, and I pull it out, and it's twelve bacterias of um, that that you find on toads. It was like some science magazine or whatever, and I'm sitting there, and here's what I'm thinking: Oh, I'll read that. That looks interesting. So I picked that up and start start looking at it. Now, now think about this for a second. It's a dumb article. Like some people I know, Doug, I'm sorry, I know you would find that very interesting. Um, There's people in here that would find that very interesting. I, I don't know why I found it interesting. I was bored. But think about this for a second. There is zero resistance for me to pick that up and read that. But when I get in my quiet time, when I'm sitting at my desk and everything's quiet and this Bible opens, what happens? The phone rings, people come in. My own mind, it doesn't even matter if other people don't, my own mind is drifting to about a thousand different places. There is resistance. Because when we try to get close to God, there's resistance. Because we live in a fallen world, a broken world with broken flesh that is trying its best to get as far away from its creator as possible. So when we draw close to God, it does not prevent failure. In fact, it might create the potential for more. And this is what we see happening with Paul in this passage. Paul has seen God. And because of what Paul has seen, because of God's, because of Paul's closeness to God, look at what happens. Look at verse seven here. Because of the the vision. He he talks about the vision uh, that he has with Christ. And then he says in verse seven here, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Talking about the revelations he just talked about, seeing Jesus. Because of that, and to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given to me, or given me in the flesh. Because, this is what Paul's saying, because of what I've seen and because of how close I've gotten to God, this has happened. Now, when we see the word thorn there, we all know what a thorn is, okay? We, we, we get that picture in our head pretty, pretty easily. I, I like to take, when I cut the grass, I usually, uh, I like to take one of the boys, the older two boys on the lawnmower with me. And it's a, it's a riding lawnmower. And so one of them gets up in the riding lawnmower with me. And truthfully, the main reason I'm doing it, there's two reasons. One, I like the, the, the daddy-son time that we get to have on those moments. You know, I want them remembering, oh, you know, dad used to take me out on the riding lawnmower and we used to, to drive. The other reason's a little bit more selfish. I want to indoctrinate them so much in loving landscape that one day I can just give it all to them and not have to worry about it anymore. So there is a selfish motive there. But but we're, we're sitting on this lawnmower and we're right on the edge we've got we share a property line with just woods okay and we're right on the edge of that wood and I didn't even see really what happened except I didn't see what it was but I knew what it was after his response Will grabs he's just going and he's grabbing branches I already told him not to do it but he's doing it anyway Um, and he goes and he grabs before I can stop him he grabs this branch that's hanging hanging off right there where he can reach And I knew the minute he grabbed it, I knew what it was. Because what did he do? He he yanks back and he starts crying. And so we stopped the lawnmower and I look at his little finger. And he's got this little, really, really, really small, almost, you know, like microscopic size thorn in his finger. And it's hurting him. I mean, we all know, I don't care how small it is. It hurts when you get a, a thorn in your finger. And so I reach down and pull it out, and about two minutes later, he's he's done with it. He's over it. He's stopped crying. Now, when we think of thorn, we think of this this way. Like when we look at Paul and we're thinking thorn in flesh, we're thinking the little thorn that's real subtle, that's sticking in, and it's hurting. It's it's causing discomfort. But here's something to think about. This word here, and I know some of you guys don't care about this. Some of you do. This word here is the word scallops. It's a Greek word. It is the only place in all of Scripture or in all of the New Testament that you will see this word used like this for thorn. I mean, think about New Testament. We've got crown of thorns. We've got hedge of thorns. But in this passage, this is the only place where the word thorn here is the word scallops. And the reason for that is thorn here has a bigger meaning than just this little briar that's small and can easily be pulled out. It also carries the idea, if you look up the definition, it carries the idea of a stake. Now, this is a pretty massive stake, granted. But can you imagine the difference between a thorn and a stake? I mean, can we get a picture of a thorn in someone's side, and then can you get a picture of something like this piercing someone's side? Maybe not hitting vital organs, but sitting in there, and every bump, every move is gonna cause great pain. Think about that for a second. I mean, you look at the life of Paul. This is a man that's been shipwrecked, beaten, senseless. He's been stoned on many occasions and he's there and he's been imprisoned. I mean, even in his imprisonment, what's he doing? He's singing, he's praising God. This man is not given to just, he's a tough guy. I mean, he's a really tough guy. He deals with a lot of pain. He deals with a lot of stuff in his life. But for whatever reason, this thorn, this stake in his life was a big deal to him. It was a big pain in his life. Now, the question is, and this is where it gets kind of scholastic, but the question is, what is the thorn? What is the thorn In the flesh, I've, I've spent a lot more time than I normally do researching this because it's such a big issue. What is the thorn in the flesh? What is the thorn that Paul is talking about here? John MacArthur great commentator. He says it's a physical demon. It's an actual demon that's going around and just constantly harassing him. The, the great order, Charles Spurgeon, says it's a temptation or a past sin that constantly tries to take hold. John Piper says it's persecutions or a physical ailment, maybe, maybe his eyesight, uh, based off the Galatians passage. Uh, some braver people, and I'm not one of these people, by the way, but some braver people actually says it's a wife, that the thorn in his flesh. Is a wife, his wife. Now, here's the question: You've got all these scholars, many great scholars, spirit-filled men of God, saying, and that have extensive education in this, that are saying many different things. Why is this so unclear? I mean, we could look at this passage this morning. With no no training or anything, and some of you have that I know. But we could look at this passage this morning, and we could let you take ten minutes to look at that, and 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 try to cross reference. We could give you hours, several hours, to look at that, and let you cross reference scripture and all that. And then I could say, all right, how many of you don't do this? Don't raise your hand. But I could say, how many of you think it's uh, a demon? And hands would go up. How many think it's a temptation? Hands would go up. How many think it's uh, it's uh, a physical ailment? Hands would go up. And then you know I'd say, how many think it's a wife? And some poor guy in the back would raise. His hand and we'd have to get a marital counseling with Gary, but but here's the thing: many different views on what this thorn is, and here's the reason why we don't know. I believe the reason why it's so clear, uh, so unclear, is because it's not the point. The point of this passage is not what is Paul's thorn. One scholar said this. I love this. One scholar has said that the uncertainty is there because the Holy Spirit. Is trying to help us identify not what Paul's thorn is, but what our thorn is. God is is showing us here in in a universal, God is showing us here a universal and powerful truth through a specific situation in Paul's life. He does this all through Scripture. You see passages, you see narratives in Scripture. What's it doing? It's revealing the character of who God is and what He says we are. And this is what you see in this passage. You're seeing a very specific situation that's happening to Paul that is there for us to glean a bigger truth on what this is, what this is about. That the fact is it's not important what Paul's thorn is. The fact is, like Paul, we all carry thorns, and most of them really are failures that we see in our lives. This is our struggle with failure. So what are our sources of failure? What are what, what where does failure come from? One is very obvious. The first place it comes from is it comes from ourselves. And this is the idea of working through trying. Works through trying. We try and we fail. And culture says to us, if you try and you fail, try harder. That's the idea that we see here, that that life is all about, that our culture has said that life is all about us just trying harder to succeed. And that when we do try hard enough, when we do try big enough, that the ultimate goal in that is delight in self-sufficiency. That when we try hard enough and when we succeed by world standards, that we can look at a situation like that and that the goal in that is that we would delight in our own self-sufficiency. That we would delight in what we have accomplished. Look at what I have accomplished. Success has become a merit that we give ourselves. We delight in our own abilities. And the fact of the matter is this is a very secular approach to thinking. This is a very worldly approach. That that everything that, that we succeed in is because of our own great and grand accomplishments. Because of our own great and grand abilities. And in the end, it's, it's just failure. We are a source of our failure. Secondly, second uh, source of failure, Satan. Satan, and he works through tempting. Look at verse 7 again. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. And then it, it, it says this about the thorn. A messenger of Satan to harass me. That there is more, there is an element at play in our lives. When it comes to failure, there is more than just a physical element at play in failure. There is a spiritual world that's going on when we fail. And that Satan is right there in the mix. And his, his ultimate goal through tempting us is destruction in accusation, destruction, it's an accusation. It's the same way he has worked since the beginning of time. Satan does this. He, he tempts you in something and then you fall to that temptation. What does he do? He accuses you. He says, look at what you just did. This idea Satan hates you. He wants to destroy you by planning the lie that your failure is too awful for God to cover through Jesus. That is the lie that Satan is, is feeding us. He wants you to be identified and imprisoned by your failures. But there is another source here. And, and you need to listen carefully on this, all right? Look at this verse with me again, verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And then it says this other phrase, it says this phrase twice in the same verse. To keep me from becoming conceited. Why did he get the thorn? to keep him from becoming conceited. Now, I have a question for you. Why would Satan care about you not being conceited? I mean, think about that for a second. Satan wants you to be conceited. He wants you to be prideful. He wants you to be exalted above God and above others. So why is it that Satan would care about that? He doesn't. There is, if you read this text, and if you look at, we're gonna say this here, there is a silent... Giver in this text that we need to see. God works through testing. He doesn't work through trying, He doesn't work through tempting, but God's there and He works through testing. We said this last week. When we say that the sovereign God of the universe is in control of everything in the universe, when we say that, we have to realize that nothing escapes His control. There's nothing in this world that escapes his control. Everything that comes our way, cancer, job loss, temptation, every failure that we face, get this, it's filtered through the hand of God. It's filtered through the hand of God. To say he is sovereign is to say that he is allowing that. The ultimate goal and the reason he does that, the reason there's this failure out there The reason that he does that is he is testing us to get us to a goal where we are not not destroyed, where we are not delighting in our self-sufficiency, but where we are dependent in humility. God uses failure in your life so that you can learn to rely on him. The word independence in this culture is a virtuous word. It's a word that we like. It's an American word, independence. But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to our relationship with God, it could be the furthest word from what God wants in our lives. That we are not looking, God is not looking for us to be independent and self-sufficient. He is looking for dependency on him. Now, an important thing to see here, this is very important. God does not cause moral failure, but he uses it. He does not cause sinful temptation. Remember, James tells us about this. God doesn't tempt us, but he does allow it, and he does use it in our lives to bring humility and dependency in him so that we can be satisfied in him fully. So the question is, what is our solution for failure? If it's a part of life, if it's here in our lives, how do we deal with our failure? For many of us, the truth of the matter is, the way we deal with it is we become imprisoned by our failure. This mirror here has been in my family for as long as I can remember, okay? It's been here in our family. I remember as a 5-year-old or an 8-year-old looking in this mirror. And then when we moved, uh, when I got married and we moved into our own house, my, my parents gave us this mirror. It wasn't anything special. It was just, hey, you need a mirror, and here it goes, So I I look in this mirror about every day, not not because I'm vain or anything, but, you know, you got to check to make sure stuff's not hanging out your nose. But this is the mirror that's sitting in our house. And I look at this mirror. This mirror is a representation of who I am. The mirror in your house that you look at, that person in that mirror is a representation of who you are. And if you're a follower of God, the fact is when we look in this mirror in our house, the fact is we need to be able to recognize the fact that God created that person that's in your mirror. God died for that person. God has a plan for that person. God wants that person to be fully and finally satisfied in him. But for many of us, when we look into the mirror whether it be the physical mirror or or the spiritual mirror of our soul, when we look into the mirror, we don't see us. We don't see this child of God. What we see is this. For some of us, when we look into the mirror, we don't see a child of God. We see a failed life. We see our failures right there. And we have become imprisoned and identified with those failures. The fact is, this is a mirror of my personal failures in life. There's there's plenty of others that should be on here. But this is a mirror of my past failures. Some, Some failures are in the past, and some failures I still struggle with. This word clumsy, this name for a failure. I remember seventh grade. Seventh grade, I tried out for the basketball team. Cut the first hour of tryouts. Like I have zero upper body like coordination. I played soccer and I did okay in soccer. But you know what the truth is? That, that stuck with me for many years as a teenager. The reason I don't play on the softball team is not because I don't want to fellowship with you softball guys. It's because you don't, you don't want that kind of fellowship. I'm clumsy when it comes to that. And that's a failure as a teenager that I carried with me for a long time. Wimp. My first job, I was 15 years old. I quit the first week because I wanted to go to the pool. 15. You know what? This is so embarrassing. I actually cried about the situation. I was there. My friends called me on the phone. You want to come to the pool? I can't come. And I got off the phone and I started crying about it. A 15-year-old crying about something so silly. Failure. As, as a young man, for two years of my life, this is, this is so hard for me to talk about, but for two years of my life, lust and liar went right hand in hand for two years. I was in accountability groups, and yet there was this, this sinful addiction in my life that, I, that had this hold in my life, and I would go to that accountability group, and I would just lie. I would say, no, I don't have a problem with that. And thank, thank God that's, that's under the blood. And you know what? I, I don't struggle that way anymore. But you know what? That still looks at me sometimes in the mirror. And these things, this anger, I still struggle with this. These things that are in our lives, we see them. And so many times it's so easy to get, when we look in that mirror and we see our failure, to get so defeated by that and so imprisoned by that and so identified with that. And God has has allowed failure to come into our life, but he does not desire for us to be imprisoned by it. So so how do we face our failures and weaknesses? Look at these really quick. First, praying instead of pouting. Praying instead of pouting. Look at verse eight. Three times, Paul, he wants this, this thorn to go away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Have you even prayed about the things that you see here in the mirror? Have you even prayed about these things? not pouting Praying. My children understand the difference in our house between pouting and praying, between pouting and asking for something from me because pouting doesn't lead anywhere. It's just a self-inflicted, self-look-at-me, look-how-bad-my-situation-is moment rather than solution-oriented. Do we take these things before the sovereign king or do we just pout about them to our friends, family, and social media? Matthew 7 talks about that there's this perfect father that is sitting there and he wants for you to just ask. How many times do we take these things before God, before a holy God? Praying instead of pouting. Number two, receiving instead of reliving. Many of us relive our failures daily, dwelling on them and continuing on them. Many of us, our past, it's constantly something that we are reliving. And that's defeating us. Some of our current stuff, this anger in my life, I have to be careful not to, not to keep reliving it, not to get to a place where I become so defeated by my failure that I just sit in it. Like, yeah, I'll just keep doing this. There's no use anyway. God doesn't desire that for us. He doesn't desire for us to keep reliving this. He says here in verse 9, but he said to me, this is, this is God talking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes God doesn't give us the answer we want. We we realize this. But he gives us something far greater than an answer that we would want. He gives us grace. Instead of reliving the past, instead of playing out these failures in our lives over and over and over again, instead of just trying harder in our own strength, it's time for us to receive the boundless grace that Jesus offers. And you know the truth about the grace of God? It doesn't give us license to continue in our failure. It gives us grace to endure. It gives us grace. His, His grace not only saves us one time in our life, it, sustain us, it sustains us every minute of every day. When we receive the grace of God, it changes us. It changes our heart. It changes our attitude towards the things in our life. Lastly, worshiping instead of wallowing. Worshiping instead of wallowing. Verse 9 says, this is is Paul's response to what he says about, uh, what God says about his grace. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Worship breaks imprisonment to failure. Worship breaks that. Worship is more than singing songs. It's a lifestyle and mentality where we refuse to be controlled by our failures, where we see God in the light of our failures, and we're able to worship him in our past failures. We're able to say to him, I am not marked, by my past failures, I am made new by your grace. Where we're able to worship in our performance failures and say to him, I am not defeated by these failures. I am dependent on your sovereign hand. Or we're able to worship in even our current moral failures and say, I am not controlled by this. I am compelled by your grace to see your way of escape. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. we know it. No temptation has taken you Overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's the application? The beauty in our failures is that God displays His strength through them. We don't have to be imprisoned by our failures. Instead, we can be identified by his grace. We don't have to be imprisoned by this. We don't have to wake up in the morning and see these things staring us in the face. We can can be encaptured or enraptured by God's grace and we can see this picture. When we look in the mirror and we see ourselves, we can see this this son or daughter of God that is loved by God, that's created by God, that has a plan that God has put in place for them and that God's desire for that person that's in the mirror is for them to be fully and finally satisfied in Jesus, in the person of who God is and be satisfied in his grace. The reason I can come up here today, the reason I can come up here today and show you the other side of this mirror and show you personal failures that I've dealt with in my life, the reason that Paul can boast about his weaknesses, his infirmities, these things that are in his life, the reason is because there is a God that shines through all failure. He shines through all brokenness. And he doesn't give us license to continue in moral failure, but he gives us the strength to endure temptation, to endure the suffering that we face in this world. You've got that piece of paper there. And I want to end with this. For several of you in this room, that piece of paper might have on it some of your failures. I, I, I did this, we actually were at camp a few few months ago with our students, and this, this illustration was handed out to me, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm thinking through this, and you know what, I've got a seminary degree, I study the word a lot, but I've forgotten this. I'm sitting there and I'm writing down current things that I'm struggling with in my heart and in my soul, like just failures in my life. Failures as a dad at times, failures as this and that. And I'm writing these things down. This is what God would talk to me about. And at the end, this pastor says something interesting. He says, you know, you know the number one or the number one and two thing that God would say that should be on everyone's piece of paper? It wasn't on mine it's i love you and my grace is sufficient my grace is sufficient to deal with your failure your failure is not so deep that you cannot get find your way out and i needed to be reminded of that that his grace is sufficient for us so where are you this morning we're going to have a time of invitation but i want i just want to ask where are you this morning Are you living in the identification and imprisonment of your failure? Or are you being identified with a sovereign God who has given you boundless grace that compels you to live a life of just conquering, being more than a conqueror in Christ? Does it mean that all failure is going to leave your life? Probably not. You'll probably have more. But God is there and he is faithful to help you endure So that we can look at the cross and say, thank you, God, for that. Because because of that, because of what you've done for me, Jesus, I can endure and I can be made new by your grace. Will you stand to your feet, please? God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, God. And I just pray, Lord, that as we listen today, as we hear this word, Father, that that it would change our lives, God, that we would recognize, Lord, that the Christian life is not just a list of do's and don'ts, Father. Lord, it's a relationship with a holy God. It's a relationship with a heavenly Father that loves us enough, God, to change us. Lord, as the song says, Lord, that that our failures would be lost in the light of your glorious grace. So, God, I pray today, Father, as we we're here, I don't know the the hearts of people in this room, but God, if there's people today that are being identified with their failure, if they're being imprisoned by their failures, God, I pray, Lord, that you would set them free today, Father, that their mirror would be a picture of your grace and a picture of what you did on the cross for them, Father. Lord, we thank you for what you've done today. We thank you for this word, and we just pray, Lord, that you would use it to impact our hearts and impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know where you're at today. I'll be here at the front. Gary will be here at the front. Just do what God would have.